You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And let's begin with a word of prayer together. Our Father, we have sung to you the sentiments of our heart, our desire to worship you and praise you. We have spoken your truth back to you in the form of worship and adoration. But we know that there is something that is far more important, and that is for you to speak to us through your word. Nothing that we can say to you can compare to what you have said to us. So we pray now that you would give us attentiveness to that. As we give attention to your word, we pray that you would minister to our hearts, encourage us together in it, glorify yourself here in our midst. And as we come to know you deeper through your word, we pray that we would hunger for that word and that we would love that word and that we would um, take it in and, and give attention to it in order that we might feast upon you and receive from you truth and instruction. We commit our time here now to you and pray that your spirit would be our teacher and that your word would be our guide in Jesus name. Amen. Well, we're going to jump right into our study this morning because we've got a lot of ground to cover. In fact, I had uh, marked out more ground than we're actually going to get covered, and I was hoping to cover more than we are. In John chapter 1, we're starting a new section this morning, and uh, we are introduced in the, in the next few verses, beginning in verse 19, to one of the most perplexing, one of the most, to me, mysterious, one of the most intriguing and interesting characters in all of the New Testament. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. We don't read about him in the Old Testament. We actually read about him in the New Testament. But he is the final of the Old Testament prophets. He is sometimes called John the Baptist. Sometimes he is referred to as uh, John the Baptizer. Sometimes he's referred to as just the Baptist. And no, he wasn't Southern. Some of you who come from Southern Baptist churches are saying, finally, we're going to study the founder of our denomination. Yeah, (laughs) John... Uh, Chad is wondering, I bet Chad, when you think of John the Baptist, you always picture him speaking a southern accent, don't you? Yeah, that's true. No, he wasn't southern. He wasn't southern Baptist. He founded no denomination. He was the last of the Old Testament prophets and arguably the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus said of John the Baptist, of all the men born of a woman, he is the greatest of all. And yet Jesus said, he who is least in the kingdom of heaven will be greater than John the Baptist. And what Jesus meant by that was, Positionally, John the Baptist is the greatest man who has ever lived because he had the best, the most unique, the most dignified role ever given to any human being. And what was that role? To announce the arrival of the Messiah. Every Old Testament prophet foretold of that, but never got to see it with his own eyes. Every Old Testament prophet predicted it, longed to see it, but never got to see it. John the Baptist showed up on the scene and he was the one who bore witness to the light and he had the the unspeakable privilege of being the one to herald the dawn of the Messiah, the arrival of the Messiah. He who all of the Old Testament Scriptures predicted and prophesied and pointed to, John the Baptist got to announce, here he is, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What an indescribable privilege that was. John the Baptist got it. So the greatest man who's ever lived, You ever wonder, by the way, and this is on an aside, what Jesus meant when He said, He who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John the Baptist. 
You ever wonder what that means? What Jesus was saying by that was that in the kingdom of heaven, it is going to be greater to actually be in the kingdom than it is to announce the arrival of the kingdom. It will be a better privilege, a greater privilege, even for us who are in the kingdom, than it will be for John the Baptist who got to just simply announce the kingdom because we actually get to partake of it. So the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. We have been introduced to him just briefly in our study of the book of John in chapter 1, verse 6, where John says, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. Now remember, we have two different Johns. We have John the author, who is the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and Revelation. That's different than the John that's being spoken of in verse 6. The John in verse 6 is John the Baptist. There's more than one John in Scripture. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. And then we were introduced just briefly to his testimony in verse 15, where John, the author, kind of sums up the Baptist's testimony. John testified about him, that is Christ, and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. And now, beginning in verse 19, you will notice there's a change of tone. And it's really a striking change of tone. Up until this time, the first 18 verses that we've been studying, we have talked about a lot of heavenly things. We have talked about the eternal Word who was made flesh. He who was God, who existed in the form of God, who was with the Father and with the Spirit, who was the Creator of all things, who was Himself light and life. And then He came here and He took upon Himself human flesh and came in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death. We've talked about the existence of that Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, who existed from all of eternity and who is the Creator of all things. But now beginning in verse 19, the tone changes drastically. Now beginning in verse 19, the focus is not so much on the eternal Word, but on John the Baptist. And the emphasis switches from these heavenly things to really the very plain and simple narrative of the life of Jesus. Why is that? Why is there such a change of tone now in the Gospel of John? It is because John now is switching from Jesus in heaven to Jesus on earth. And he is going to go through for us all of the things that Jesus said and Jesus did while he was here on earth. So our focus changes from heaven now to a focus on earth. And John, as I mentioned last week, is going to, in the next 21 chapters, try to prove to us that all of the things that he said in the first 18 verses are so. He is going to show to us that Jesus existed before time. He's going to show to us that He is the Creator of all things and that He is God in human flesh. John now, John the author, is going to lay out his case that this Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that by believing in, by believing in Him, we have life in His name. And the first witness that John is going to call to the stand is a man by the name of John the Baptist. And so for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be talking about John the Baptist, who he was, and what he did. So that's why the tone has changed a little bit. Verse 19 really marks the beginning of the next major section in the book of John. Verses 1 to 18 is the introduction. Verse 19 marks the beginning of the next section, which takes us through to the end of chapter 1, or the end of chapter 2, or the end of chapter 4, depending on how you outline the book. And you may have guessed, I haven't quite figured out how we're going to outline the book of John yet. You could outline the book of John by Jesus' geographical movements. For instance, John or Jesus in Judea, chapter 1. Jesus in uh, Galilee, chapter 2. Jesus in Samaria, chapter 4. 
Jesus in Jerusalem, chapters 5 through whatever. You could outline the book of John geographically as where Jesus moves. You could outline the book of John around the discourses, Jesus' conversations and his teachings. There are seven main discourses. He has the discourse with Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman at the well in chapter 4, the resurrection discourse in chapter 5, the bread of life discourse in chapter 6, the light of the world discourse in chapter 8, the good shepherd discourse in chapter 10, and then the upper room discourse in chapters 15 and following. We could outline the book of John that way. We could outline the book of John around Jesus' private ministry and then his public ministry and how he switches back and forth between those two. Do you remember when we were in the book of Jonah, I gave you a, a really memorable outline for the book of Jonah? The rebellious prophet, the repentant prophet, the resent, no, reluctant prophet. It was a very memorable outline. I have nothing like that for you for the book of John yet. But as we go through, we'll sort of put together some sort of an outline. This I do know. Verse 19 begins the next major section of the book of John. Where that ends, maybe chapter 21, I don't know, but that much I know. This is the next major section. So let's look at it. Let me give you, since we're starting the next major section of the book of John, I'm going to step back for just a second and sort of present to you a few unique characteristics of this whole next section. I want you to notice three things. First of all, there is a timeline presented to us at the end of chapter 1 and in chapter 2. And I want you to notice how John unfolds this. This, I think, is an interesting observation. I'll confess to you, I'm not quite sure how much to make of this, but I want you to notice it. Verse 19, this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites to him from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? Look at verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God. Look at verse 35. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. Verse 43, the next day he purposed to go into Galilee. And then chapter 2, verse 1, on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and Jesus goes to that. Do you notice the unfolding of the events there? John gives a very tight timeline in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of his gospel. Which is unique because the gospel writers typically don't do that. And John typically doesn't do it for the rest of the book, but here he does. Here he gives us seven days in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and the events that unfolded over those seven days. In verse 19, when John the Baptist asks the question, answers the question from the Jews, the Levites and the priests, who are you? That's day one. Verse 29 is day two. The next day he saw Jesus. Verse 35 is day three. The next day John was standing with two of them. Verse 43 is day four. And then chapter two, verse one, the third day, that is from the fourth, that's fifth, sixth and seven days. Now, why is this a significant observation? In John chapter 1, it begins with, in the beginning. And then it talks about He who is God, who is the Creator of all things. And then John chapter 7 follows with seven days in which this divine power is manifested, culminating on a creative act where He takes water and turns it into wine at the wedding in, in Galilee. Now, can you think of another place in your Bible where a book begins with in the beginning and the discussion is of God creating something and demonstrating his divine power unfolded over seven days? Anything come to mind? Genesis chapter one. Friends, I think that there is an intentional parallel between John chapter one and Genesis chapter one. In Genesis chapter one, you have God creating everything. In John chapter 1, you have that self-same God in human flesh walking amongst His creation. In Genesis chapter 1, the first week in Genesis, you have the, the divine power of God manifested in creating water. 
And then in John chapter 1, the first week in John, you have that divine power manifested in Him creating wine out of water in John chapter 2. I think there's an intentional parallel between Genesis 1 and John 1. I don't know how much you can make of it. But it's interesting to me that John lays out this seven-day timeline which culminates in a creative act of the God in human flesh. So there's a timeline there. Second, we do want to give some attention to the timing of the events in John chapter 1. And what I want to do as we go through the book of John is to sort of harmonize all of the Gospels, to bring in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and sort of paint a big picture so we understand where the events in the book of John fall and what the timing of them is. And it's important that we understand where in the life of Jesus the events of John 1 fall. John 1, verse 19, begins after the baptism of Jesus and His temptation in the wilderness. How do we know that? Because look at verse 32, where John the Baptist testifies, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and He remained upon Him. I did not recognize Him, but He who sent Me to baptize in water said to Me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remain upon Him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. And I have myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Now, when did John see the Spirit of God descending upon Jesus and remaining upon Him? At His baptism. Now, Mark says immediately after Jesus was baptized, He was impelled to go out into the wilderness to be tempted for 40 days. So here's the order of events. Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, which was the beginning of His public ministry. He immediately went out into the wilderness and was tempted for 40 days. And then He came back to the place where John was baptizing. And it's there. And then in verse 29... The next day, he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that's when these events occur. The third thing I want you to keep in mind is sort of the outline of all of this. Beginning in verse 19 through verse 23, we're going to look at John the Baptist, specifically his identity. Because the question there is, who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you one of the prophets? What do you have to say about yourself? And the questions that they're asking him have to do with his identity. Then in verses 24 through verse 28, we're going to look at John the Baptist and his ministry. Because after he answers no to all of those questions, are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? Are you the Christ? What do you have to say about yourself? John the Baptist answers no, no, no to all of those. Then they ask him, what then are you doing baptizing? Explain what it is that you're doing if you're not the Christ. If you're not Elijah, if you're not the prophet who is to come, what are you doing baptizing people? Give an accounting of your ministry. That has to do with his, his ministry. And then verse 29 through verse 35 is his testimony, what he has to say about Jesus. So his identity, his ministry, and his testimony is how John paints for us John the Baptist. So today we're going to look at his identity, beginning in verse 19 through verse 23. And as we sort of unpack this, we're going to focus our attention around three things. We'll notice in verse 19, the questioners, this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? The priests and the Levites are sent from the Jews in Jerusalem. Those are the questioners. Second, we're going to look at the questions. Verse 20, and he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then are you, Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. Then they said to him, who are you so that we may give an answer to those who sent us? What do you say about yourself? Those are the questions that they asked him. Then third, we're going to look at a quotation. The quotation in verse 23. 
He said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. So the questioners, the questions, and the quotation. It's short, it's pithy, and it's all I got for you as far as an outline goes. So let's begin with the questioners. Verse 19. This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent to him priests and Levites. This is the, this is the testimony. This is the witness. This is what John bore witness to when he was questioned. Now, the priests and the Levites arrive on the scene, presumably out in the wilderness where John is baptizing near the Jordan River. And the crowds are there. And the, John says the Jews had sent to him priests and Levites to ask him a question. The question is, who are you? The Jews. Who are the Jews? And, and this is kind of interesting, and, and we got to get this down. Otherwise, you're going to sense or think that I'm in some way anti-Semitic. And I don't want you to think that because I'm not. Who are the Jews? When John mentions Jews in his gospel, he uses the, the word in a rather distinct way that the rest of the New Testament doesn't necessarily use that word. John uses the word Jews 71 times in his gospel. It's a predominant word and a predominant idea. Sometimes, very seldom, but sometimes, John uses the word in a neutral sense. He just speaks of the Jews in the sense of those who were Jews by descent. Sometimes John uses the word in a very positive sense. For instance, in John 4, verse 22, where Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. It's a positive reference to Jews. Predominantly, mostly, in the Gospel of John, John uses the term Jews to refer not to all Jews in particular, but to specific Jews in Jerusalem, those who were the leaders of the people, the leaders of the nation, the leaders of the religious life of the nation, specifically those who were hostile to Jesus and His message. That is predominantly how John uses the term Jews. To speak of the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Herodians, those who were the leaders of the people, the leaders of the nation, the leaders of the religion of the people, and specifically those who were most hostile to Jesus. That's how he uses the term Jews. And that's how he uses it here. You can tell from verse 24 that he doesn't have in mind just all the Jews because the Jews in Jerusalem who send the priests and the Levites out to John, those are the Pharisees in particular. These are the leaders of the Sanhedrin. These are the, the Pharisees or the theologians, the, the righteousness experts of the, of the, of the of religion, the religious leaders of the nation, the Pharisees. They send out a delegation of priests and Levites. Now, why are the Pharisees sending out a group to John the Baptist in the wilderness to ask him questions? I want to paint for you a picture that will help sort of put this in a historical context and help you understand what's going on. At the time of John the Baptist and of Jesus in the first century, Messianic expectations were at a fever pitch. Fever pitch. There were Orthodox Jews who were reading and studying Daniel chapter 9, and they were saying to themselves, look, we can add and we can subtract and we can multiply, and we have figured out that the arrival of the Messiah... And the Messiah, the prince, being cut off, as prophesied in Daniel chapter 9, is very close at hand. The 69 weeks of Daniel's prophecy are coming to an end. The time is right for the Messiah to show up. And we ought to be looking for Him. There were people who were understanding that. There were people who, under the oppressive rule of Rome, were longing for that political deliverer, the, religious, the political Messiah who would show up in the clouds of heaven, overturn Rome and Gentile power, and establish the throne in Jerusalem, David's throne, and rule and reign in the kingdom from the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem, just as all the Old Testament prophets had predicted and promised. That was the expectation. That was the hope of every Jew. 
The Messiah is going to come. He's going to overturn Rome. He's going to overturn their rule. He's going to resurrect all the Old Testament saints. And we're going to enter into this blissful kingdom that has been promised and predicted through all the Old Testament prophets. On top of all of that, it had been four centuries since a God-ordained, God-sent prophet had arisen in the nation of Israel spoken for God. Four hundred years since Ezra and Nehemiah and Malachi had prophesied and and taught the people in the city of Jerusalem. People were longing to hear from God. People wanted to hear from God. People were expecting the Messiah to show up at any day, at any point, in the clouds of heaven. This was expected. This was anticipated. People wanted it. And already there had been false messiahs who had popped up and created these little disturbances and gathered these little followings after them and then sort of just vanished from the scene. So messianic expectation was at a fever pitch. Now listen, in that environment comes a man whom the Bible says was dressed in camel's hair with a belt around his waist, ate locusts and wild honey, lived out in the boonies. And on top of that, he was preaching repentance and he was calling onto the carpet and calling to account all of the religious leaders of the nation. He was a unique person whose birth had been attended by supernatural signs like the appearance of an angel and his father being struck uh, unable to speak until after he named his son John. And he lived out in the boonies and people were coming to him in droves. Matthew chapter 3 says all Jerusalem came out. All Judea came out. Samaria came out. People came out to see this odd duck, John the Baptist, in crowds that would boggle our mind. He was the talk of the town. They went outside the city and they saw this guy preaching by the river, preaching repentance to people. People were repenting. People were preparing themselves for the Messiah. And then they would go back into the city of Jerusalem and talk about him at the water cooler the next day. He was in all the headlines. All the religious leaders of the nation of Israel had heard of him. This was no small movement. He was creating no small disturbance whatsoever. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of the Sanhedrin and those who had the positions of power who were the theological and religious watchdogs for the nation of Israel, they were saying to themselves, who is this guy? What does he have to say for himself? Because he's gathering quite a following. And he's saying quite a lot of disturbing things. And really, there are two things that are of significance here. Their job was to guard the religious life of the people and the religious life of the nation. And if a false messiah or a false prophet were to pop up, this could do two things. Number one, it could threaten their own security, their own power base, their own position of prominence, which they, which they love. The second thing is that they were concerned about Rome. Rome. Because the Jews had this history of these little mini revolts. And they did it consistently. Every few years there would be a little revolt. And then you know what Rome would do? They would come in and they would squash it like a bug. Violently. Violently. And that is exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Jews and the leaders of the Sanhedrin, that's what they're concerned about. If this guy gets this kind of a following and he is doing this and he creates this sort of insurgency, if we have any kind of little insurgency or little mini-rebellion, Rome is going to come in and destroy us. Do you remember in John chapter 11, after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, what did they do? The Pharisees convened a council together, and you know what they said? They said, what are we going to do with this guy? We have to do something, because if he continues like this, everybody's going to believe on him, and then all of the people are going to follow after him, and then Rome is going to come in and take away both our place and our nation. That was their concern. Then Caiaphas, that's when Caiaphas stood up and said, look, it's better that we kill him than that the whole nation perish. And from that point forward, they began to plot his death. Better to have him die than have 
him lead some sort of rebellion, have Rome come in, destroy us all, and wipe us all out. That was their concern. Jesus presented a threat to them. Any type of Messiah presented a threat to them. John, if he was the Messiah, also presented a threat to them. And second, John had been saying some pretty scathing things about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Matthew chapter 3 verse 5 says that when, oh sorry, verse chapter 3 verse 7, when he, that is Jesus, or sorry, John the Baptist saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Oh, let me ask you a question. Do you think that that made the rounds and the rest of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin heard about that? You little snakes. You little brood of serpents. Who warns you to flee from the wrath that is to come? There's two things insulting about that. First, obviously being called a serpent or a child of a snake. Second, to suggest to a Pharisee and a Sadducee, as self-righteous as they were, that they might even encounter the wrath of God for anything, and to call upon a Pharisee and a Sadducee to repent. And that's exactly what John the Baptist did. And you can imagine the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the crowds who heard him say those things to the religious leaders of the nation. You can imagine the talk that went on the next day at the water cooler, right? As everybody began to talk about that, did you hear what John said? Man, I was there by the Jordan and I about dropped my teeth when I heard him call the leader of that sect a child of a snake. He was saying some scathing things about Pharisees and Sadducees, which would explain why the Jews, that is the Pharisees, sent a delegation of priests and Levites out to him to ask him, who are you? Now, it's priests and it's Levites that go out. Let's deal with those in opposite order. First, the Levites. What were the Levites? The Levites were the group of people who helped the priests do everything inside the temple that they were to do. Prepared the different sacrifices and everything. The priests actually did the services, but the Levites helped the functioning of the entire temple complex. That was their job. That was their first job. Second, the Levites were also the temple police force. Their job was to keep the peace. Their job was security. When all the crowds came in for the main events, the the Levites, their job was the temple police to keep the security and keep the peace inside the temple. So why do you think the Levites came with the priests? Because the priests needed help asking questions? No. Why would the Levites come with the priests? Because out in a crowd like that, as they begin to inquire of John the Baptist, I think probably the Levites are there in case the whole thing goes south in a hurry. We need somebody with us packing some heat to get us out of there. I think it's a security detail. The priests are there to ask the question. The Levites, the temple police, go along with the priests out to the crowd to inquire of John. Now, I think it's a significant detail that the priests are there. And here's why. Who is John's father? John the Baptist. Zacharias, the what? The priest. Luke chapter 1. It was when Zacharias' name came up by lot and he was burning the evening incense that the angel appeared and said, Elizabeth, your wife will be with child in her old age. You'll name him John. That happened because Zacharias, he was in the temple when that happened. He was officiating as a priest when that happened. John the Baptist's father was a priest. Remember that. So John the Baptist is one of their own. In that sense, but in another sense, John the Baptist is entirely an outsider. Because John the Baptist didn't follow in his father's tradition. He didn't follow in the family ministry. He wasn't a priest himself, but his father was a priest. So the priests who come to John the Baptist, they do know him. If they were to ask him, if you were to ask them, 
Who is he? They would say, well, that's Johnny. That's Zacharias and Elizabeth's son. We remember him. We remember the stories of him. His dad served as a priest in the temple for years. He comes from a priestly family. I remember seeing him run around Jerusalem, run around the temple complex as a child when his father was there serving in the temple. That's old Johnny. That's Elizabeth and Zachariah's son. But really the question in verse 20 to 22 is this. Who are you? We know about the angel. We heard about that. We know that your dad used to talk about that. He was a priest. Why is it that unlike every other priest child, you didn't go into the priesthood? Why is it that you're out in the wilderness? Why is it that you dress like a prophet? Why is it that you... Who really are you? We know you're Johnny or John, but there's something more than meets the eye, isn't there? And John the Baptist was, by all accounts, in every way, a complete outsider. A complete outsider. He was not a Pharisee. He was not a Sadducee. He was not a Herodian. Those were the three major sects that sort of made up the religious and political life of the nation of Israel. We'll get into the difference between those at some point, but not right now. He didn't claim to be a Pharisee, didn't claim to be a Sadducee, didn't claim to be a Herodian. So he was outside all of the political and religious circles of his day. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't part of the priestly duties. He had no ranking position in the temple. He had no ranking religious position in the religious life of the nation. He was not trained at the feet of Gamaliel or any of the prestigious uh, rabbis. He didn't go to any of the prestigious schools. He was a nobody as far as those things were concerned. He was just a man dressed in camel's hair out in the desert preaching a baptism of repentance and the gospel of repentance, getting people to repent and prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. He was outside the social circles, the religious circles, and the political circles. He had no power or influence, but the crowds were coming out and listening to him in droves. And that had to make the Pharisees and the Sadducees somewhat angry, did it not? That people don't come to listen to us preach like that, right? There's always jealousy when... When you're preaching and teaching and people show up in droves to see somebody else, they don't show up in droves to see you. That's the natural inclination of the fallen, sinful, depraved, wretched, horrible human flesh. You think the Pharisees didn't notice that? Hey, we're in the temple every day teaching. The crowds don't come and listen to us. Who is this guy who's never been trained? Who is this guy that's not one of us? And he's out there drawing all the crowds. And so that's what they want to ask him. He was an outsider, completely outside the nation of Israel, completely outside the circles of his day, completely rejected by everybody except the hoi ploi, the people. And so the Pharisees say, we need to find out who he is and why he's doing what he's doing. And here's the last thing I want you to notice. Already in the Gospel of John, verse 19, you can see the hostility to Jesus or something new, can you not? It's subtle, but it's there. It's not intense, but the hostility is present. They responded with hostility to anybody who threatened their position, anybody who threatened their power, anybody who threatened their prestige. They responded with hostility to anybody who was outside of their group, that was not one of them, that was not ordained by them, commissioned by them, one of the insiders. They responded with hostility. And that hostility is going to grow more and more intense as the gospel unfolds And you'll see it get more and more intense until it finally culminates in the crucifixion of the Son of God. But it begins even right here. John was a threat. John was a threat because of his popularity. John was a threat because of his ministry. And how did they respond? They come out to inquire of him, who are you? And give an account for what it is that you're doing. These guys are not curious. They're calling him on the carpet and basically saying, by what authority 
Do you come out here and preach, and do you come out here and baptize? That's the questioners. Now, you've noticed we didn't get to the questions or the quotation, right? You noticed that, didn't you? But at the same time, you know that I can't possibly start into one of these questions because it's just going to take too too long to unfold all of that. So we will look at the questions, four of them, that they asked John the Baptist and the quotation next week. Here's your homework, so to speak. I want you to go back and I want you to find out before next week. I don't do this every week, by the way, for those of you who are new here. I don't give homework every week. But here's your homework for this week, since I'm stopping in the middle of a message, really. I want you to go back home and find out why they asked him, are you Elijah? What's behind that? And then ask yourself or find out who is the prophet that they mentioned in those questions. Because there are four questions. Who are you? And really they're asking him, are you the Christ? Because that's what John says. I'm not the Christ. And he knows that's what they're asking. Who are you? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? What do you have to say for yourself? Those are the four questions. So we'll look at the questions and the quotation next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we do thank you again for your word, for what is there, the depth of it, the profundity of it. We thank you that we can study it and read it and have it in our own hands. And It is a pleasure and a joy to be here. We do pray, O oh God, that you give us wisdom and insight into these things and that you would apply your word to our heart. Help us to understand uh, what is going on here historically and what is going on here in your word, that we might obey you, that we might appreciate all that you've laid before us. We thank you for the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth, who died on the cross and rose again for our sins. We bless you and thank you in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.